Thanks for joining us for the Minor Tweak, Major Impact podcast. We're excited to have Dr. Glenn Beckley as the guest for today's episode. Most people learn about podcasts from their friends, so please share this link with any friends or colleagues you think might find this show interesting. Dr. Beckley is the CEO of BioCurate, a joint initiative of Monash and Melbourne Universities and created to provide commercial focus in the early phases of drug development. From 2002 to 2012, he was Vice President and Global Head of Hematology Oncology Research at Amgen. There, he highlighted the issue of research integrity and scientific reproducibility. Before Amgen, he had over 20 years of clinical experience in medical oncology and hematology, where his personal research focused on regulation of hematopoietic cells and translational clinical trials. His honors include being elected as the first foreign fellow to the American Society of Clinical Investigation in 2000, to the Association of American Physicians in 2008, and in 2014 to the Research Hall of Fame of his alma mater, the Royal Melbourne Hospital and the Australian Academy of Health and Medical Sciences. Glenn, I would like to welcome you to the Minor Tweak, Major Impact podcast. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Glenn, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, your background and what you're currently working on? So currently I'm employed at Biocurate which is a company that was created by Melbourne and Monash universities who came together recognizing that they had outstanding research and that there was an opportunity to have more impact as a consequence of that research. So they created a company, Biocurate, and sought me as the chief executive officer and staff with international industry experience who understand what translation and commercialization of discoveries is all about. So our task is to do that, to take the discoveries out of the universities and turn them into drugs, therapeutics, treatments that might have impact. Prior to that, I was consultant in the US and the UK for startup and biotech companies. And before that, for 10 years, ran the hematology oncology research group at Amgen on the west coast of the US. Prior to that, I had an academic career in Australia involved in both clinical research and basic research for 25 years. So at some point in your life, you were working at Amgen in Southern California. And so when you were working there, you conducted a study to try to reproduce the result of 53 potentially groundbreaking publications. Can you tell us a little bit more about this study and also its outcome? And what was really your main motivation to conduct this study? So... What happened was uh, I had 10 years at Amgen, had a fantastic time, wonderful colleagues, great company, fantastic projects. And oftentimes researchers would bring forward a project and say, well, this paper has just been published. We should be working on this. And from my academic career, I had an impression that much of the literature could not be reproduced. So I would routinely say, we know that half of the literature is wrong. Why should we invest in this particular project? So after 10 years, I thought I should look back and see what we had actually done. When I first arrived at Amgen, we created a mechanism whereby every project that we initiated was recorded. The reason for starting it was recorded and the reason for terminating it was recorded. And I thought that that was the right thing to do for my successor so that if there was 
for example, a really hot target, but that the world just didn't have appropriate tools at that time, that that target should not be taken off the hot target list simply because we didn't have the right tools. So after 10 years, I thought I should go back and see what our success had been in terms of projects that we'd progressed and those that we'd terminated. And then I was shocked to discover that essentially 90% of the papers that we'd attempted to reproduce in the top tier journals, we were unable to do so. It was actually worse than that because our standard operating procedure was when unable to reproduce a paper, we would contact the original authors. And on the majority of occasions, we would actually have an Amgen scientist go into the original laboratory where the original experiments had been performed and simply ask the experimenters to repeat those experiments while we were watching. The only thing we did on those occasions was ask them to repeat the experiments in a blinded fashion, and they were unable to generate the same results that they'd published. To me, again, I I found this shocking. This was something that was uh, certainly not what I had expected. Of course, to have an Amgen scientist in their laboratory they had required us to sign a confidentiality agreement saying that we wouldn't disclose the laboratories that we'd worked in, nor would we take advantage of other work that might be going on in the laboratory and use it uh, without their knowledge and permission. And as a result of that, we were unable to disclose the laboratories with which we were working, but we were unable to reproduce 47 studies from 46 different laboratories, or more correctly, the investigators themselves were unable to reproduce their work. So the conclusion that I came to was that this is a systematic problem that we have. It's not one or two labs behaving badly. This is a widespread problem that is endemic to our current scientific system. For those of our listeners who might not know what it means to conduct a study blinded, can you just explain real quick what that means? Sure. All we did was take the reagents that the host laboratory had generated and gave them back to them, but they didn't know whether or not they were using the test article or the control article. So they would run the experiment get the result, and after we had the result in hand, we would unblind or disclose which experiment had been performed with the test article and which experiment had been performed with the control article. And as a result of that, as I said, they were unable to reproduce their experiments simply when they didn't know what it was they were looking at. But if they knew what it was they were looking at, they were able to get the result that they wanted. During all those studies of trying to reproduce the results of publications, did you ever see any instances where minor method tweaks were able to make methods work again? Or like, for example, was there anything that maybe the original authors of the publication, they forgot to mention, and that was the reason why the method didn't work? And then maybe afterwards, people found out that there was a little twist that they missed, and then that was the reason why the method didn't work? The short answer is no. So I'm well aware that sometimes that is the case and that subtle changes in experimental methodology can sometimes turn a result around. But what we were looking at here was the investigators doing the experiment themselves in their own laboratories with their own reagents. So they were doing it exactly the way they'd always done it. The only, the fundamental difference was that they were doing the experiment without knowing whether or not they were looking at the test article or the control article. And that was what resulted in their inability to generate the results. 
But if they knew what they were looking at, they were able to see the same thing again. It's just that they weren't able to do so if they performed the experiment blind. Very interesting. So what do you think the main reason for that is? I think what we're suffering from in the current scientific system are perverse incentives that drive us all to get results that are flashy or results that are spectacular. And as a result of a flashy or a spectacular result, we're able to get our papers published in the so-called top tier journals. And then that guarantees that I can get my next research grant or I can get my postdoctoral position. But we don't have a system at the moment that focuses on quality. We have much too great an emphasis on the flashy result rather than the method that allowed us to get there. So my biggest concern is the perverse incentives drive these sorts of behaviors, re reward these sorts of behaviors. When you were working in a lab as a scientist yourself, did you ever find any methods that didn't work because of any minor tweaks that you did not know about because maybe the publications just did not include enough detail to reproduce the results? Yes, oftentimes, but I experienced that more in my academic life than in my life in industry. So researchers with whom we were working were very generous to allow Amgen scientists to go into their laboratory and watch them do experiments. Uh, that meant that the little tweaks and so on that can be important were not important in this context. But in my prior academic life, yes, some relatively minor what people might consider unimportant change to methods can certainly influence the outcome. And those minor changes or tweaks can be very important and are often not recognized and often not disclosed in the original paper. Again, that is much more of a problem in my experience in my academic life where I didn't have the opportunity of actually going to the laboratory of so many researchers and actually watching them do the experiments. With the experience I had at Amgen, that was not the case because the researchers generously provided their time and allowed an Amgen researcher to stand next to them and watch them do the experiment. And can you talk about any specific examples, what those minor tweaks looked like for you? Like what were things that you saw that people didn't include in their publications that were actually very important for you to also call it a method? I think one of the most important relates to the antibodies that people use. So people often use antibodies for Western blot analysis or for immunohistochemistry. And not just the provider of the antibody, but the actual batch lot of each antibody is important oftentimes to allow one to get the same result again and again and again. Yet often that crucial information is not communicated in the original paper. So antibodies, I think, are a very critical experimental reagent, and we often assume all antibodies are equal. They are not. And we often assume that the antibody from one manufacturer against a particular antigen is the same as another antibody from a different manufacturer against the same antigen. That, I think, is a major cause for results and a cause for a lack of reproducibility between laboratories. 
Very interesting. And so when you experienced that there was missing information about the antibody, the batch lock or any, any other important information, what was typically your way of doing this? Did you try to contact the author of the publication or did you just try a whole bunch of different things yourself? Or what was the main um, path that you followed to figure out the details you needed to know? So in my academic experience, we would probably just have bought several antibodies. If we couldn't reproduce the work, we would just give up. But we were much more diligent in my experience at Amgen and tried to chase things down to the very end to try and understand all the different elements that might have contributed to a result. I don't think most academic researchers have the luxury of being able to do that. But within industry, it's critically important to understand the basis upon which you're going to build a drug development program or a clinical program. So it was an appropriate use of resources in the industrial environment that I think is generally not available to people in the academic environment. Were there any points sometimes when you were doing experiments and you just thought of giving up and that this just wouldn't work? And usually, how long would you try to do something before you're just, oh, this doesn't work, I'm not going to try this any further? So again, it's a different answer for my academic experience versus my experience in industry. So in academia, my experience was that you had to move on fairly quickly because One has to generate publications. One has to satisfy the terms of the research grant. So time spent trying to unearth what's going on, the additional levels of diligence are just time consuming and one would rather move on than, than try and understand in enormous detail the differences in particular experimental design or execution. But for industry, those types of things are critically important because it's going to be the basis of a drug discovery program. It's going to be the basis of something that might go into patients. So it's very important to understand that in great detail. So industry has the luxury of performing more diligence, has more resources available to be able to understand these sorts of things to a degree that academia in general just simply can't afford because people have to continue to generate papers to justify their next research grant. Do you have any advice for scientists out there who are experiencing the lack of detailed method descriptions right now? I think the best thing is to try and talk to the original investigators and see if you can get additional information. Again, sometimes investigators are not keen to provide that information because they believe it gives them a competitive advantage over their competitors. That, again, wasn't a problem that we had at Amgen because we were able to sign a confidentiality agreement guaranteeing that we wouldn't take advantage of their scientific research and publish papers without their knowledge. But in the academic environment, that sense of competition can inhibit the ability to freely exchange information. But I think the best thing is to talk to the investigators and try and understand what the differences might actually be. The other thing that I would suggest is that people should try and take different approaches to address a particular question. So using one example, for example, siRNA, that can be a useful tool to try and address the function of a particular gene. But to rely simply on siRNA alone is 
very often fraught with difficulties. So one would want to take additional independent approaches to that particular gene's function. So one might use siRNA, one might use CRISPR to delete gene function, one might also use small molecules against that particular gene, hoping that all the different independent approaches help one conclude that the critical function is actually the same, regardless of the approach that's been adopted. Again, within industry, that is standard and routine, but it is more challenging within academia when one may not have access to the array of resources that are required. Awesome. And I have one last question for you, and that is, um, do you have any favorite lab tool? And if you do, why is that your favorite lab tool? I'm not sure I have a favorite lab tool. I have things that I don't like at all. SIR is one. So if I was king of the world, I would probably do away with <laughs> siRNA because many of the experiments that we could not repeat were based on experiments using siRNA. I think siRNA, like any other tool, can be very powerful, but it has to be developed properly and appropriately controlled. Oftentimes with siRNA, investigators use only one or two siRNAs against their favorite target, and they often only use one or two controls. And then the off-target effects of those siRNAs are not even visible. But siRNA can be powerful if it's used appropriately. And again, the way that industry would typically tackle that might be to use a dozen siRNAs against a particular gene and with 30 or 50,000 negative controls to try and truly understand what is the effect of that particular gene. So I think any of the techniques that we've got are powerful, but it's very important to make sure that they're appropriately controlled and that the results are not overinterpreted. Glenn, thank you so much for being with us today and sharing your stories and insights on the Minor Tweak Major Impact podcast. Thank you. This is your host, Anita, and we look forward to being with you for our next episode.